Alrighty, uh, good, what's the time? Good evening, everyone. Uh, this is Mike McDowell, the host of Geo Geopolitical Pivot. Um, we're here again uh, with a good friend of mine, Bob Nee, um, and we're talking about part two of the Northern Ireland security dilemma. So, uh, Bob, how's, how's it going? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm just getting my. Uh, I'm about ready to open up my bushmills here. This is a, you know, a lot of people. A lot of people talk about. Um, you invited this little New Year's toast. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people always talk about when they talk about Irish whiskey, they talk about Jameson a lot. They don't right. recognize Bushmills is actually the equivalent of Jameson in Northern Ireland. That's, okay. that's kind of their, uh, it's this really, really beautiful area in County Antrim where they make the original Bushmills distillery. Mm -hmm. um, beautiful way right off the, right off the Causeway coast up there. Mm -hmm. um, and this is kind of their preferred whiskey up there okay. in that part of the place. So, um, and it's one of the very few things in Northern Ireland that I don't believe it's very embedded into the whole Catholic Protestant thing. So, mm -hmm. you know, in honor of Brexit and all that's going on up there, I'll pour myself <laughs> a little bit here. I got, I got the big ice cube, so that's a little hard to tell the scale sometimes. But uh, anyways, Slancha. All I have is a... Uh, I don't even know what this is. Uh, Southern comfort is not what you're, you know, you're enjoying. But you know what? I'll take it. Um, so I like I like I like a little southern southern comfort every once in a while. It's all right. Um, it's an acquired Pretty good. Place. I, I don't mind. I don't mind it. <laughs> it's, I see. I I tend to mix mine with you know Pepsi, um, um or I okay. just drink it, um, straight. Um, but you know, it can never you, go wrong. Irish tradition is you just put a little bit of ice or a little bit of water in it. The way that I was always taught is that this was, I was taught this by both my dad, who's mm -hmm. a, who's a tequila aficionado. <laughs> uh, Southern, a lot of people don't know in Southern California, you know, tequila is kind of like whiskey for us. Okay. We sip it neat and it's kind of just like, okay, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a gentleman's drink down here. Um, and so, but like that. And then, like my Irish relatives would always teach me about like Jameson or Bushmills mm -hmm. or any mm -hmm. of the other more like any of the other more <coughs> um, specific Irish whiskeys. You just put a little water in and it brings out the flavor. And it's the same thing for a lot of bourbons too here in the States. Interesting. Uh, that's why you always see people drinking it with ice cubes. It's not right. because they want whiskey cold necessarily. It's just because over time, if it melts properly, then that water adds extra flavor to the drink. Yeah, I didn't know that. I did, I did. I just thought you just did it to make your thing cold. But all right. Um, Full-edged sword. <laughs> hey, I, the more you know, you know, you, you learn things every day. And that one, um, that makes sense. Um, there mm -hmm. is a difference in taste um, with and without ice with uh, with whiskey. Um, at least for me. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> we digress <laughs> into the, yes. the conversations of just the 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 nuances of whiskey uh we last left off kind of talking about uh at least bringing up the possible aftermaths um of brexit when it comes to northern ireland and the concept sure. of um a physical border um if it were to happen um just from your own understandings um and as well as maybe if you if you've spoken with people about this already, 
what's the if there are any feelings about the the plausibility of a physical border manifesting how is that going to um, impact or affect the current state of the of handling the ira um, um well i would just first of all i would caution you when you say handling the ira that's that's you're looking at half the puzzle right because mm-hmm. you're also one of the things that a lot of people don't talk about um is the ultra loyalist paramilitary groups in northern ireland mm-hmm. that, that inflicted a lot of damage as well and they're a big they're actually a big um they're a big risk right now with regards to i mean they're probably the best armed um and we can get into that a little bit later yeah. but you know in terms of the republican paramilitary groups that are really like active and are a threat mm-hmm. i would say the big ones are the continuity ira um and the new IRA, Republican Action Against Drugs, there's all sorts of little splinter groups that are factoring in. Mm-hmm. Most of them, if not all of them, have come out and said that they will attack anybody that is working on a border. Oh. So any sort of border patrol officers or people, because it's not like a border patrol like we're used to here in the mm-hmm. States, right, where you're enforcing like immigration things. Right. The main thing, if, if a border did go up, they would be checking customs regulations, right? Because right. most of, you know, a little stat about Northern Ireland for you, and about 1.8 million people living in the country, mm-hmm. their farms are so pro- so productive in Northern Ireland that they produce enough food to feed 10 million. Oh, so wow. it's a natural. So most of their farms export a lot of stuff, and specifically one of the main trading partners is the Republic, the 26 counties in the south mm-hmm. that are that are united under the Dublin government, right. uh, that have nothing to do with the British Crown at all anymore. Mm-hmm. So that won their freedom in the revolution. Um, so they. Um, Anyway, so they would just be making sure the purpose of any sort of border regulation, if it were to go into effect, mm-hmm. would be to make sure that any of the trade goods that were coming out of Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. out of the six counties that are that are still under the British monarchy, right, would be meeting EU regulations in the so that they could get market access in the Republic. Okay. It's not any sort of like that's that's a big thing Americans don't understand because when we see border controls and border security stuff we see it through the context of arrest illegal immigrants mm-hmm. catch you know secure borders secure right. drug flow all that type of stuff um you know and there is some of that i mean the real ira right now and and a lot of the republican splinter groups are trying to raise money off illegal cigarettes and drugs that are coming in through the borders mm-hmm. but the majority of it is that that would be that they would be enforcing a they would be checking checking to make sure that the commerce goods and the commerce coming out of the Northern Ireland meets with the regulatory standards of the, of Brussels, mm-hmm. ergo Dublin. Okay. The problem is that the Republican splinter groups have all come out pretty much unilaterally and said that any government employee that is doing that will be subject to attacks. Mm-hmm. And to put some teeth to this, a couple of months ago, a little while ago, the real IRA or the new IRA as they're calling themselves now, because they've merged with a bunch of other dissident groups that are smaller. They murdered a prison officer. One of the heads of Northern Ireland's prison service that conducted the training, his name was uh, Captain Adrian Ismay. Mm-hmm. And he, the guy who murdered him just recently got sentenced uh, about, I think he got sentenced a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. uh, to life quote unquote but they've abolished the death penalty in northern Ireland, so it's gonna he'll he'll probably do about 40 years he's 55 years old so he's not going to make the 40 Mm -hmm. years so 
Um, he's 55 years old, he's obese, and he's going into a prison that's into a prison system that's having problems with coronavirus. So he's going to have some problems. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he's already alleged. The best part is he's already leaking to. He's already leaking to the. Um, he was kind of. I think that this particular guy was seen as a little bit of a useful idiot by the Republican paramilitaries. Mm-hmm. They didn't particularly like him. Apparently, he got into some trouble because he bullied an autistic child or something. Not like when he was in high school. Like he, as a grown man was mocking some kid and the parents went to the Republicans to try to get them to sort him out. And so they, I don't know, they're, they're not as necessarily in love with that particular member as they'd like to think. Uh And apparently some of the boys on the block are giving him a hard time in, in the joint. And Mm. so he's coming out now and leaking to the media that his lawyers are leaking to the political parties affiliated with dissident groups that he's not, Prison wasn't what he thought it was, and mm-hmm. now he's trying to renegotiate his sentencing agreement. It's a, it's a mess. <laughs> uh, it's <laughs> you know, it's as my my mother worked in prisons, and and you know, she always said if you if you do the crime, you got to do the time. Right. He apparently never got that lesson. Ah. Uh, my grandmother always tells me, you know, the school of the school of hard knocks is always open. Um, mm. So that's uh, that's an interesting example where he didn't want the hard knocks, but he was willing to go to school. Um, yeah. but that's, so I know you, you know, you brought up the notions of, um, the loyalists and there's mm-hmm. nationalists. So like, what's the difference between the, two, the, these, these two generalized concepts? So there's, it's, it's not really, so you brought up an interesting little thing. Um, so basically the, the difference is you have unionism and loyalism. There is a very, very small group called that exists called Ulster Nationalists. They are within the context of Ulster loyalism, and they basically they they want Northern Ireland to be its own country, independent of Britain or the Republic at all. Um, Mm -hmm. They're irrelevant. Basically, there's about six people that are involved in that, and they all they're all in their older seventies, and you know. But but so the difference the difference there is a difference a pretty pronounced difference between unionism and loyalism. Loyalism okay. is more of a um, it gets a much harder stereotype, but mm-hmm. it's the bedrock of unionism. Uh, unionism is ba- loyalism is basically the notion that we are unionism is just the notion that we should be governed from Dublin or from from London, not Dublin. Mm-hmm. Loyalism is the notion that we are British. Okay. We, okay, we are British people, and it dates back, frankly. Um, I mean, it dates back to the to the ancient times with the ancient Irish warrior whose name was Cahullan, who was some sort of a, a – they claimed that he was sort of their great-great-grandfather of the concept of loyalism. Mighty Cahullan is what they'll refer to him as. Mm-hmm. Um, and in old – like they will, they will say in, in um, one of the most famous Ulster loyalist songs that was sung by a regiment called the 36th Ulster mm-hmm. at the Somme. Um, they were in World War One. You know, their song went something to the tune of "We are the seeds of mighty Cahullan, We are the sons of Congal Cleam." It's another mm-hmm. old Irish. Uh, determined that Gale and Rome will not rule us, mm-hmm. and England, if need be, will stand. So that was their. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of the big. That's kind of the the way to understand it. Um, mm. The difference is the problem is that. Unionism cannot exist without loyalism. Okay. Because 
you know, at some level, there has to be a cultural identity that ties Ulster and the Protestants of Ulster to London, and that is their British identity and their British heritage. Mm-hmm. The the kind of sad part about it is that it's kind of a it's it's a it's it's frowned upon to call yourself a loyalist now in Northern Ireland because what happened in the sixties and seventies was you had this paramilitary, like I went through on the last episode, the mm-hmm. IRA had this big military history. Mm-hmm. All right. And they literally modeled themselves after the British army to the point where they actually, like I said, they had, they had judge advocates, right. They had trial procedures. They had all sorts of other like old, old military traditions. I remember that. And so they start to, um, as they were causing, causing the, the situation to escalate in the North, um, within the Catholic perspective, a lot of times Protestant communities like specific Protestant communities in places like East Belfast and the Waterside in Derry. The Waterside is, is this sort of on there. It's this sort of V shaped part of Mm -hmm. the, of the, of Western, of the Western part of the city of Derry um, that loyalists call Londonderry. And, the western part, it's divided down the middle by the River Foyle, and the western part tends to be more Catholic, but this one little neighborhood has, on its one flank, they have the River Foyle, and then on the other side, they have all of these Catholics. So the Protestants in that area are really, really, really militant, because it's kind of like, you know, they're the last they're the last men on the island, so mm-hmm. to speak. Um, what happened in a lot of these areas is that because of the fact that these guys, in the 60s and 70s, they they needed to sort of oh my God, we've got to figure out a way to protect ourselves. And, you know, the police weren't able to effectively do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Irish Republican paramilitaries will tell you different and the propaganda will tell you different, but the police were not able to move into the Catholic areas as efficiently as they wanted to, um, into major, into smaller Protestant areas. So they had to develop these things called quote unquote tartan gangs, mm-hmm. right? And a tartan gang was basically, it was essentially a, it, in, in theory, it was supposed to be a vigilante group of young guys from the neighborhood that rose up and defended their home. In reality, it wound up being like a street level set of individual gangs mm-hmm. that happened to be very Protestant and live in the Protestant areas that would basically take up security procedures to defend their individual neighborhoods. Okay. So the rationale behind that, so what wound up happening is a lot of these Ulster loyalists, Ulster Ulster loyalist groups that defended the unionist Protestants became very, very infested with gangsters. Okay. And so they had a lot of like street level hoodlums and stuff like that. Mm. And so this is why, like, if you look at paramilitary history, you really when like, there are feuds that happen on the Republican side. There are times when you'll see like, Oh, like the NLA in particular, the Irish national liberation army used to cause problems with the provisional IRA all the time. Because uh, the IR, the INLA were a bunch of communists who didn't know how to engage in operations, and they would compromise PIRA things all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but whenever there tends to be any sort of beef mm-hmm. uh, on the Republican side, it's pretty quickly dealt with. Mm-hmm. They kind of both sides. Everybody kind of knows each other. First of all, they all grew up in the same neighborhoods and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so they call each other to the table pretty quickly and they recognize like, okay, United Ireland, we've got our goal that we've got to get to all this other bullshit basically mm-hmm. that we've got to get, let, let's sort it out, get it done with right. so that we can get back on track. Right. Loyalist feuds are a lot bloodier. Loyalist feuds are a lot bloodier and they're a lot longer. 
Um, is it because of it's more of like a personal type thing, or is yeah, it's it? Because it's, it's because it's more personal, and because of the fact that so many of them are Protestant loyalists, mm-hmm. who their entire background was is that they're street level gangsters. Gotcha. The IRA again views itself as a military. Mm-hmm. They don't really view themselves as a military on the Protestant side. They see themselves as more of like a like a citizens' defense committee type thing. Mm. Okay, which is ironic that I use that term because that they literally the Catholics literally did have citizens' defense committees, and the IRA would recruit from them. But that's kind of that's so it's it's maybe not the best terminology, <laughs> but uh, it's it's basically that type of thing. And these guys were these guys. You know, you look up. Um, Johnny Adair of C Company or mm-hmm. any of these other types of, uh, you know, they had a guy, they used to call him Skelly McCrory. Okay. And, they, and you know, that was his, um, that was his name. And he was a, uh, you know, these guys were all you know, Gutsy Spence or Gusty Spence. You know, these guys had like gangster type, you know, they had Fat Jackie Thompson. They, they had like, <laughs> you know, gangster type nicknames, <laughs> you know. So, with all of this um, going on, I know we last time we kind of brought up um, how Thatcher asked Reagan um, to essentially thwart um, the Irish supporters here in Philadelphia towards the the IRA. Uh, how, if you you know if you can speak on it a little bit, uh, what were some ways in which Thatcher um, sought to resolve or at least approach? the the uh the the security problems or the ongoing um i guess you can call it a national security problem uh it was of the of the ira and kind of the second follow-up question to that i would be are there any continual lingering um complications um from her policies towards addressing the situation um so I'm, I'm going to cut to the chase with the second one. There's mm-hmm. not really a whole lot of lingering problems from Thatcher's individual IRA, counter IRA strategy mm-hmm. that you could talk about. Um, Thatcher was pretty good, in all honesty. Uh, so Thatcher was an interesting sort of figure in terms of IRA history because Thatcher dealt with them for so long. I mean, she mm-hmm. dealt with 79 on to 91. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, I, I believe she was the longest she was there for the longest period of time of any British prime minister in the trouble. So, you know, her basic approach to the IRA, she, I mean, she was a cat. She was a, I'm sorry. She was a loyalist. She was a firm Protestant. Mm -hmm. Um, However, and, and she had a famous phrase in, in, I think it's 1975 when she took over the conservative party, the leadership conference, she said, you know, crime is crime is crime. Mm -hmm. It is not, Political. There's no such thing as political murder. That was her other, because all these guys were saying that, you know, when they would go in on hunger strike, mm-hmm. and when they would be incarcerated in prisons, the protest that, that a lot of the inmates had was that the Irish Republicans believed that they were a part of a separate military, and they were captured in war, mm-hmm. and as a result of that, they would be, they would be party to various provisions of the Geneva Convention that would allow for them to be treated unlike common criminals. Mm-hmm. So they would get to wear their own clothes. They wouldn't have to do certain things that the prisons wanted them to do. There was all kinds of stuff like that. And Thatcher's whole approach on it was, we're just going to, no, we're, we're not going to appease this. We're not going to go in. Um, you know, we're not going to grant public appeasal. And she was very tough. 
in terms of her initial public strategy. Mm-hmm. But in private, she she was a lot more conciliatory because she recognized that there was a political element to this that had to be met. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I mean, she she was she would allow for political leaders in Ireland to fly over to the UK and, you know, meet with senior levels of the British government. She signed the St. Andrews Agreement um, that allowed for a setup of Northern Ireland's government mm-hmm. eventually, because they dissolved the government under under um, Chichester Clark, who was the prime minister of Northern Ireland at the time in the 1970s, before Thatcher came into power. They dissolved the government and they put it into effect in the mid-90s again. Mm-hmm. Until that, it was basically just a controlled, it was a dictatorship run by the um, run by the British through the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. Okay. Uh, and so they would so Thatcher was Thatcher was a lot more conciliatory. She allegedly knew the names of Irish Republican paramilitary hunger strikers mm-hmm. that were engaging in and would routinely ask questions about them. She was supposedly if there's a there's a great book um, by a guy named Willie Carlin, who was a political informer for the British. He was a, he was a penetration of the of the Irish Republican political movements mm-hmm. that were outlawed at the time for. Um, for MI5 and Thatcher would ask questions about how he was doing and how his family was doing every Mm -hmm. single day when he had to be exfiltrated out of the UK. She let him, she gave him basically their version of air force one and was like, here you go, you know, take all your, and like comped everything for all the kids. She treated the people that worked with her very, very, very great, Mm -hmm. you know? And it was very, it was kind of reading over Margaret Thatcher and thinking about how her response is, it, it really reminded me of David Petraeus and what he used to say about the, uh, about the insurgency in Iraq, mm-hmm. right? If you look at it, most of the, if you talk to some of these guys who went into Afghanistan or who were in the, in the early stages of OIF-1, mm-hmm. what these guys say is that we were taught counterinsurgency, our basic coin stuff was taught to us by British military officers. Right. They were like, we've got experience in this from Northern Ireland, man. You better mm-hmm. listen. Right. Uh, that was their whole, you know. So what I what I was reminded of specifically with Thatcher was that she she Petraeus always used to say it was like maybe you can maybe you can jump in with the individual quote, but it was a, a soldier should have a rifle in one hand and a wrench in the other. Mm-hmm. And Margaret Thatcher very much understood that she was extremely tough on mm-hmm. them on a public front. She used to absolutely, I mean, they tried to kill her a couple of times. They killed her, they killed her personal assistant. They Mm -hmm. killed her, um, they tried to kill her at least twice in very serious ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And Thatcher just never blinked. She knew, you know, the most famous of which, the most famous assassination attempt on her was the bombing at Brighton Beach Mm -hmm. at the hotel. If you ever see the movie Thatcher, they take out literally about half the hotel with this Semtex bomb that they had put under the hotel. Um, the most famous, though, I would be absolutely, but Thatcher just knew never to blink. Right. I would be remiss, though, if I did not mention the most famous moment of Margaret Thatcher's um, of Margaret Thatcher's prime ministership with regards to the IRA. It was the 1981 hunger strike. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> 14 Irish prisoners starved themselves to death in protest of the prison policies that were going on at the time. 
this is very uncouth, and I can get in a lot of trouble with my Irish nationalist friends for saying this. Mm. But the most recent documentation has proof that even though that's that's where Margaret Thatcher came up with crime is crime is crime, mm-hmm. and or not crime is crime is crime. That was the Conservative Party mm-hmm. conference in 1975. Mm-hmm. But in 1981, they were asked about this, and in particular, their leader was a guy named Bobby Sands, who's mm-hmm. about 25 years old. He had been called. It's it's considered an honor in Irish Republican culture to be called to go on hunger strike because they've oh. literally been doing it since you since the 800s in in Norman jails. I mean, it's so you know it's like you are you were called to be. It's it's almost like if you were selected to be a suicide bomber, uh, not a okay. or not not a suicide bomber because that's the that's well no that's, that kind of makes sense though because in some um... kamikaze pilots. Of Japan. That's, that's the one. best way. That's what mm-hmm. I was thinking of. That makes sense. Uh, but no, but even, um, you know, we're talking about suicide bombers. Um, in some instances, especially those um, when you're looking at kind of like the ISIS camp of um, Islamic fundamental, fundamental extremism, if you are chosen to do something, especially a suicide bomber, that's kind of like, that's an honor um, to die, but to essentially sacrifice yourself for the grand eschatological calls to form this this caliphate per se but as you stated with the kamikaze attacks with you know with with, uh with the imperial japanese military during world war ii that's an even greater example Um, but i didn't know irish hunger strikes went went back no that's it's i mean it, it goes back in traceable history it goes back to right before the irish uh the irish revolutions Mm -hmm. Um, actually one of my original people who I, when I was first getting into this, what I would talk to was somebody whose dad was about a 12 or 14 year old kid. And he was in charge of sneaking food into the Dublin jails in Mm -hmm. 1912 to feed the hunger strikers or his grandfather. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it was his dad. I don't remember. He was, he's an older guy, but, um, you know, so anyway, but it is, it is considered, a extremely high honor wow. to go on hunger strike. And so in the 1980s, they were pro- in the 1970s and eighties, mm-hmm. they were protesting the, the uniform policy specifically of the prisons. So originally what they would do is they would go into the, um, they, they had um, four or five major prisons at, at her majesty's prison maze, which no longer is standing. Mm-hmm. Um, was the big was the big house, so to speak, in Northern Ireland, and so they did all sorts of things that anybody like like I said, my mom worked in prisons and she recognized these protests immediately. They did dirty protests, which is what they would call it. They would smear excrement because they didn't mm-hmm. have they had chamber pots that they were using the bathroom in, and they would smear feces and and wow. fecal matter on the cell walls, and they would make all kinds of art and stuff like that with mm-hmm. it. Um, and they would they would refuse to wear the uniforms. They would walk around naked with with their towels or something wrapped around them, if that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually, when they weren't when that wasn't enough to sort of move the needle up to where they wanted it to be, they said, "All right, we're going on hunger strike." Originally, that happened. A guy named Brendan Hughes was in charge of the was the officer commanding of the prison. Mm-hmm. Um, officers commanding don't go on the hunger strike because they're they're the commanding officer of the institution. You're a parent, and, and again, this is thinking like a military institution, right? If you're captured, what's what's it say on the back of a common access card in the military, right? If I'm a 
if I am captured behind enemy lines, it has all the things that they're party to. But then mm-hmm. also it says on the bot on the back, it says something like, um, or every soldier knows, you know, if I'm captured, this is what I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. I, if, if you're enlisted, you follow orders of the superior officers. But if you're officers, if you're captured behind enemy lines, you're expected to be the commander and, and try to resist interrogation, you know, refuse information and then get people out as soon as you possibly can. Right. Yeah. I had that same infrastructure with the officer commanding and the intelligence, the, the intelligence cells within the prisons that they would try to work with. So this guy, Brendan Hughes was in charge. And originally what wound up happening was that there was about an 18 year old kid who was going to starve himself to death. And they had to, they were going to have to force feed him with, um, with a tube Mm-hmm. And they couldn't get the tube down because he was so skinny he was going to die if they if they they were they were afraid they'd rupture an organ and so in 79 or 80 i think it was they called off the first hunger strike right after that the british government comes in and says okay we'll meet you with certain expectations mm-hmm. hughes gets released mm-hmm. so there's a new officer commanding in charge of the institution mm-hmm. and it's bobby bobby says i'm going on strike and because they didn't they didn't necessarily meet some of the demands so there was all sorts of political institutions and and there was all sorts of heaping political pressure mm-hmm. from the domestic market because remember northern ireland's a weird situation for the british government right because it's a it's a foreign issue essentially right you've got mm-hmm. a foreign entity the, the irish republican army claiming territorial right over british territory mm-hmm. and it's using a foreign a, the the lackadaisical security infrastructure of a foreign government to do it but ultimately because the institution because what's happening is happening on domestic grounds it's an it's a domestic problem mm-hmm. so it's kind of it's a weird situation for them to deal with mm-hmm. so there's domestic and international pressure on thatcher right the, it's getting to the point where you know the Irish Republicans knew how to leverage their connections in the U.S. They were powerful institutions in key powerful, you know, Irish Catholics are powerful in this country in the powerful states, right? In New York and, and Massachusetts and, and Pennsylvania and stuff like that. They were, they were leveraging political connections there, cultural connections there, cultural connections in Australia and Canada too, where Ireland has a big impact that are important to the U.K. because mm-hmm. of their status in the Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. Then on top of that, I mean, the Pope got involved. Pope John Paul was getting involved in leveraging Margaret Thatcher to meet the grant, uh, to oh. meet the demands. There were, you know, labor movements in the UK that were trying to do this too, that were trying. So there was, all, and then on top of that, you've got nationalists in Wales and in Scotland that are also causing problems and, and mm-hmm. looking at this situation. So this is a big, big problem for Thatcher. Mm-hmm. And she came under a pretty heavy assault from a lot of the British media because of her handling of this and the strategy that they adopted was that they were going to start the strikes about two weeks apart so that if people started to die, then it would be a slow drip for the media as Andrew, as Andrew Breitbart would have called it. Right. It would, I'm pretty sure that was the only time that Andrew Breitbart's name has been brought up in conjunction with left-wing Irish Republican paramilitary (laughs) socialists. Um, But so congratulations, geopolitical pivot. You've you've got that you've got that little nugget of beautiful of accolade. Um, but <laughs> anyway, I'll take um, that accolade. Andrew Breitbart would have would have 
admired this media strategy a little bit. Um, hey. But you know, it's a slow. It's a, it was a slow drip, right? Every single time, okay, Bobby died after Bobby. Bobby was able to figure out how to get the media to fall in love with him. Mm-hmm. He was handsome. He was good looking. He was, you know, he was very good at crafting press releases. Um, and yeah, so after 66 days, Bobby Sands died on hunger strike. And, um, it was like, Oh my God, Bobby Sands is dead. My mom tells me to this day, she's like, I remember when Bobby died in Philly because people were pouring out into the streets. Mm. It was nuts. Francis Hughes dies after that. Raymond McCreesh dies after that. And the kicker, the kicker is that after this, a guy who went into the prison when I think he was 18 or 19, he was pretty young. Patsy O'Hara was his name. Mm-hmm. He dies. His mother decides that she is going to host an open casket funeral. Oh. So that, I mean, we knew what these guys looked like before because, like, Belfast Telegraph was taking pictures of them and mm-hmm. all sorts of stuff like that. But just seeing that young guy with his emaciated face. Mm-hmm. It was, it was it was a media effect that I don't know. I mean, it was just it it really really hit people mm-hmm. in the UK. And Thatcher just Thatcher stood her ground against this entire onslaught, and has looked heartless in a lot of um, more recent. You know, back then it looked it looked really bad. Mm-hmm. But Margaret Thatcher knew what she was doing, and she knew what she was doing was right. Right. Most recently, it has come out that it was the Irish Republican paramilitary leadership, mm-hmm. the political leadership in Northern Ireland, from Sinn Féin. Mm-hmm. And I, the leadership of Sinn Féin, who are still alive to this day, received every single one of their demands. Every single one. But Thatcher would not call them political prisoners. Anything else was good. Everything mm-hmm. else was good. They refused to allow the information about the deal. This has come forward. The British government offers the deal to Sinn Féin. They do not allow the prisoners within the prison to know that the deal has been offered. Because the text of it was too good and they would have lost their momentum. So they allowed, so these, so Thatcher basically did the right thing, mm-hmm. you know, and when, you know, she was trying to make it work with these guys, it was the Republican leadership that was the problem. And when you have all of these other situations, um, I, you know how I joked earlier about the Ulster loyalists having weird nicknames? Well, there yes. was one Republican that had a kind of bad nickname. Um, her name was. Her, her and her sister were two of the most brutal people in Northern Ireland. They were Dolores and Marion Price, and they used to call Marion, Marion the Widowmaker. Because <laughs> she would basically just, or the, yeah, she was, she was a killer. And she was locked up in a prison, and I think it was Wales at the time. And, um, you know, she went on hunger strike. Mm-hmm. And, Thatcher used to ask about how her condition was every single day. Right. Because I think that, I think it was something like Marion Price had also, her father had also been involved in the grocery business, which Thatcher's father was a grocer. Mm-hmm. 
there was something that Margaret Thatcher had this distinct human quality to her where she could meet with people from anywhere else in the world and, and see them as people. Mm. And that was something that she employed. She knew political warfare. She could fight the Irish Republicans on that ground. And frankly, she could fight the loyalists on that background too. She was, she was not exactly very fond of them. Um, and, but you know, there was a way in which she would tactfully sort of negotiate political processes. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I think a lot of people learned from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it was a very, it, it wound up being very good for Northern Ireland in, in both regards. And I say that as a nationalist who wants the country's reunited. Right. You know, I, I you know, there's a joke in Irish Republican circles called jelly, and the joke just goes jelly and ice cream. Yeah. And I guess jelly, jelly and ice cream is like a delicacy over right. there. But the whole line is that we'll have jelly and ice cream when Margaret Thatcher's dead. Oh. Um, so, you know, they they were not too keen on her. But I think that in terms of just a pure conflict analysis perspective, I think that it's hard to argue that Margaret Thatcher did not have a positive impact on the peaceful situation, right. both the St. Andrews Agreement and through the Hillsborough Agreement, mm. because which she negotiated. Oh, I'm sorry, she didn't sign St. Andrews, it was Hillsborough. And then there were some other agreements in Rome that she signed with the Irish governments. Mm. She was one of the first that really recognized that and really put a lot of diplomatic weight on bringing the Irish government into it. Mm-hmm. The government in Dublin into it. Oh, okay. So she brought them down. She brought them into the agreement, and they, they had been part of the security infrastructure in Britain mm-hmm. for, a, for in terms of the negotiations with that type of stuff for a little while. Mm-hmm. The Cold War was forcing Ireland to draw a lot closer to Britain because, like Kuznetsov, Kuznetsov class aircraft carriers were flying through the northern end of the Irish Sea. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like I mean, it was it was, you know they were having to posture a lot closer to Britain anyways, but they wanted the situation resolved and they, and they were sick and tired of the IRA extorting them as well. Mm. Um, but Thatcher really used international alliances, both with the UK, both with the U S and the Commonwealth in general and the Republic of Ireland to help fight this issue. It's kind of like what Trump does in the middle East in a lot mm. of ways, right? You know, where he's saying, okay, well, we're not going to negotiate with Palestinians specifically. We're going to go to Israel. We're going to go to Bahrain. We're going to go to Qatar. We're going to go to all these other places. And we're going to have state-to-state transactions dealing with it. And then Mm -hmm. that'll take out the non-state actors that are subservient to those states and need those states to conduct their operations. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, Kind of like an indirect approach to handling of the security problem. Um, So kind of going off with that then as we kind of i guess fast forward to the modern day um are there any um real true initiatives either from the you know the current boris johnson uh, administration or previous administrations that are taking uh the security dilemma of northern ireland very seriously um i mean because if you're looking at uh brexit um or if you're looking at just just the, 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 the sheer um, continual presence of a lingering, um, the remnants of a, I guess if you can call it an insurgency that that occurred. Um, no, that's definitely a fair assessment of it. What, are, there, 
are there any actual, you know, genuine beneficial approaches uh, that the United Kingdom could take or, are there, you know, London is trying to take um, to really address this continual security dilemma? Yeah, no, I think that Boris Johnson and the government in the UK are actually doing a pretty good job of it right now. Again, I think that the, you know, the Irish nationalism tends towards socialism, so it's it, it's hard for them to give credit to conservative governments, which is why I think they beat up on Thatcher a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the reasons why they do it, at least, because she was not only anti-Irish Irish nationalism, I mean, she wanted, she wanted to maintain Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom. Mm. Um, she was a loyalist in that regard, but she was also a, f- a flagrant anti-communist. Mm. Um, so with regards to more recent administration or initiatives that are going on, again, I think that it's just a continuation of the Thatcherite policy of basically, okay, you know, how do we let the, you know, there's a lot of, right now what they're doing is they're doing a lot of cross-border training between the police services because they're trying to pull the objective of a lot of both the conservative and um, liberal governments left way. I'll say le- liberal in the American sense of the okay. word, uh, labor, what have you, governments in the UK is has been to pull out, pull the British military out of Northern Ireland. Okay. Uh, Northern Ireland isn't, they don't make much money in terms of taxes for the UK, even though they produce a lot of agriculture food. It's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of, um, it's a very blue collar labor place. Um, so the tax base isn't great. And it's, and so it's a black hole for money. Mm-hmm. essentially because not only do we have 53 percent of northern ireland relying on the government to make ends meet at the end of every fiscal quarter right 53 percent of the country relies on the government to make ends meet mm-hmm. in terms of living in what they call council housing section eight basically mm-hmm. um or welfare checks or working for the government or something like that you got this massive amount of people that are on 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 the dole essentially um and then on top of that you've got a security infrastructure and I think a lot of Britons, even some of the more left-wing guys, look at this and go, "Okay, where's our return on investment here? Mm-hmm. You know, what's what's going on?" So I think people are basically saying, "Listen, if the police service of Northern Ireland, the biggest one of the biggest problems over there was that they didn't have an effective policing service. Like I talked to, like I talked about last episode, you know, the police services were predominantly pro- populated by Protestants. Mm-hmm. They also had paramilitary gendarme groups that were." Um, that called the B specials in mm. particular. Um, relative to the B specials, the police services at the time, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, Royal Ulster Constabulary is what they were called. They they looked like the Pope in terms of how friendly they were towards Catholics. The B specials mm. were terrible. The P, the PSNI is a police service that has come in on top of that, right? Mm-hmm. So in two thousand, I think it was two thousand five, they abolished the Royal Ulster Constabulary fully, right? They got rid of it entirely, and they said, "Fuck it, we're gonna scrap, we're gonna scratch it, and mm-hmm. and go from the start." Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole model with the PSNI is basically, okay, well, what, how can we attract more Catholics into that and the prison service as well? Which is why this whole thing about them killing a prison officer is is a problem, even though Adrian Ismay was a Protestant, God rest his soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I believe he was. Um, anyway, so he, um, so. What they're trying to do right now is basically they're trying to increase Catholic recruitment Mm -hmm. so that everybody feels like – because the second that it becomes an all-Protestant police force again, then the propaganda can kick back in, right? And, Mm -hmm. oh, well, you know, then then you can sort of pull the head from the cockroach, right, and disassociate people from – from their government services, and that's when that's when you can get insurgencies and can use political warfare to attack that community. So essentially um, that's a big thing. Right now, the 
dissident paramilitaries are trying to force that, force the opposite of that of happening, which is, again, one of the reasons why they killed the prison officer. Um, any sort of Catholic, again, um, that tries to join the paramilitaries will be, or not the paramilitaries, the police forces mm-hmm. will be attacked and targeted by the paramilitaries. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the good spirit of Officer Ronan Kerr, mm-hmm. who was killed in 2009. He was a Catholic. He was killed in an incident where the real IRA, I believe, booby-trapped his car oh, wow. and they murdered him after hanging. They, they, they had, again, with poor Ronan's case, they had graffiti all over the place. They had pictures of his name up with targets on it, you know, they, as soon as they find out that found out that he was a, a police officer, they were going to cause problems for him. Mm. So God rest his soul. Um, that sounds that so sounds sort of like the same when you brought up in the previous episode when they killed that journalist. Yeah. Um, no, Lyra. Well, Lyra McKee. Lyra McKee. Um, that's that's a that's an evolving situation right now. There's uh-huh. been a little bit more that's come out about that. Um, you know, that's that's kind of a. There, there's. You're right, though, in that sense that they were they were going after Lyra for a different set of reasons. Okay. Uh, you know, but they were. Uh, so I'd say that that's one thing that they have to do. The police service and the fire service have to start incorporating more um, more Catholics into their ranks, and mm-hmm. that's something that they're trying to do. Okay. And again, this is something that labor and the conservatives agree with, right? This is everybody's on this page. Um, and even in Northern Ireland, right, you have like the DUP, Ulster Unionist Party, all of those on the on the sort of Catholic side, and then mm-hmm. on the Protestant or on the on the Protestant side, and then on the Catholic side, you have Sinn Fein, SDLP, mm-hmm. and the major leadership over there, and then you have like the Alliance Party, which is kind of a middle of the road, nonpartisan thing. Um, all of them have officially endorsed the PSNI. All of them have officially backed all of the, you know, have officially backed the police service in Northern Ireland and encouraged people to join it. And, you know, the police review board commissions and stuff like that over there are all staffed by an appropriate number of Catholics and Protestants and and people from all walks of the political spectrum over there so that people can feel like all of the communities can feel enfranchised Mm -hmm. and, and can feel represented by their police and government services. Um, another thing that they're doing right now is that they're increasing the training between the police, the police service of Northern Ireland and the Gardaí, mm-hmm. right? In which the Garda Chicana is like the, is the, basically, it's kind of like the FBI of the Republic. Okay. The difference is that they also, they don't have like, oh, they don't have like Dublin Police Department or, or the Cork Police Department. Mm-hmm. They have the Garda Chicana Dublin branch, mm-hmm. right? So they'll conduct, and these are the same guys that will conduct federal investigations into counterterrorism, counterintelligence, all that type of stuff that the FBI does. But they will also pull you over for traffic tickets. They will mm-hmm. also, so it's it's the National Police Service over there. Gotcha. Um, they've been doing a lot more cross border trading with them. There's a lot more. There there's official uh, government liaison services that occur between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, there, Ireland doesn't really have the Republic. Doesn't really have a good intelligence community. They have a very small um, military intelligence wing called the G two. They work pretty closely. They're, I believe, they're even trained by the SAS. Mm-hmm. Uh, Guard a special branch, which is like the, which is like their, or the, and the National Security Division of the Garda, which do like again, that's the specialties that focus on CT and CI. 
Um, you know, they all work with the British government. Everybody's, it's all about sort of intermingling and getting everybody on the same, getting everybody on the boat rowing in the same direction. Gotcha. And so that's something that all of the parties in both Britain and Northern Ireland have generally been pretty supportive of. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the Republic as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that I, I think sometimes labor gets a little bit unrealistic about their expectations on Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. And the problem with it is that the DUP is the least is the least realistic. They are the only one of the parties that happen to be arguing for British troops to go back into the streets in Northern Ireland. They want to bring more security down in there. But they're the loyalist party that's only present in Northern Ireland. The problem is that the conservative majority sometimes in the UK gets so thin mm-hmm. that in order to maintain the majority government, in order to maintain a conservative prime minister in the 10 Downing Street spot, they need to have, they need to give concessions to the DUP to bring them into a coalition government. Mm. And in order to do that, the DUP just makes really, really, really targeted demands about British infrastructure spend and spending and in Northern Ireland specifically. Because what does the DUP care about? What foreign policy is with regards to China or something like that? They're trying to focus on what's going on in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. So that's, so that's, Sometimes the DUP knows how to play hostage taker with the conservative party in the UK. Um, and they can do that very effectively and that can cause a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, I think that, I think that, you know, the long March from the swamp to the stars for Northern Ireland has, I think that they're, they're very much on the right track and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm proud to see how, how far they've come in terms of their desire for peace and um, prosperity in their country. Gotcha. It's really something remarkable for a Catholic researcher to see. No, I um, that, that's uh, it, it, from what I've seen since our last um, conversation, it definitely that there, there seems to have been some um, areas of uh, improvement. Um, but you know, with that um, being said, we've been we've been speaking for fifty minutes, Bob. Huh. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> It's uh, times fly, uh, you know, it flies by when you're having fun. Um, so, but um, with that, I'm going to cut it off here, and then I want to do kind of a last, a part three finale of kind of an entire episode based on future implications. Okay. Um, we kind of, you know, looked at the past. Um, we looked at the nascent past where we kind of talked a little bit about what's going on now. I think then the next best thing to do is to then look at tomorrow. Yeah. What are some of the, where where are we leading? Where are some of these trends leading? And kind of based off of those, what are assessments or some sort of implications we can, we can make from that? Well, Maj, I'm happy to say that I think that tomorrow is very bright for Northern Ireland. They've come a long way and it's a, it's, they're working hard towards a better future for their children. Mm -hmm. And that's all that we can all ever really want. And I hope that you and your listeners and the rest of the world join me in praying for their peace and security in the future. Absolutely. But, um, in the, in the meantime, I'm absolutely happy to come on any other time and talk about this. This is a passion project of mine, right. and I love, I love I love fighting for these people and educating the world about 
their problems to the best capacity that I can as mm-hmm. somebody who's never, who's only ever studied it. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. You know, absolutely. This is something that I love to do. No, and absolutely. I, and I feel privileged and honored to be able to teach the world about this complicated yet very beautiful region of the world and, mm-hmm. and illustrate to all of your viewers and all of the people out there who are listening their incredible, incredible long march to peace. Yeah, no, I agree. I, um, you know, just from your uh, first episode alone, I mean, you got me to like 990 downloads around the world. So that, um, now we're sitting at about a thousand. How many were in Northern Ireland? I got a massive jump from Ireland. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> what's going What's going on here? <laughs> somebody, somebody in there, is, I just know some, some guy in the, some guy in the, in the Falls Road or, is going to be sitting there like, well, you know, the Yankee, he's, he's on to something. I think. I like he's like, wait a second. He's being far too complimentary to Margaret Thatcher. I, I, he's got to wane it then. Meanwhile, at the same time, you know, up the, up the shankle a few blocks down the road, some Protestant guy's like, this guy has no idea what he's talking about. Sure. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher was out, out way over her skis bringing in those Republicans from the state. I have no idea what he's on about. <laughs> no, but it's um, it's ever since that um, it's actually our uh, one of our top three episodes now as far as global downloads. Um, wow. We've had. Uh, not just from um, Ireland alone, but at least over the past two days, um, we've had people tune in from like Morocco and um, Brazil and Argentina, and they're listening to your podcast. So, you know, um, people are listening. People are listening, and that's kind of, you know, what, we aim to to achieve is to have people listen um and for you to come and you know not just give facts but also you know explanations um which is crucial crucial well hey Mosh, thank you very much for having me on no thank you it's always a good time with you man (laughs) absolutely I love the I love the Super Bowl champions pennant in the background. By well, of the way, you get the Eagles, hundred <laughs> percent. I told you I told you my mom's from Delco, right? Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it did. Um, you know, even though I'm now, you know, I've moved on to to DC. Um, I'll always support yeah, we're, my we're Philadelphia. Few and far between in DC, man. <laughs> we got to beat up inside of the whale sometime. When yes, this, we do. When the world stops ending. Yes. Once we, I don't, I don't even know that. That in itself is a conversation, uh, <laughs> but once definitely things settle, we will definitely have to have a shot of three of whiskey, um, <laughs> or six. You know, which is wherever the night goes. <laughs> yeah, I, got a stellar, I got a stellar wine collection in my apartment. You're welcome to any of it, man. Yeah, bless your soul. You are you are a, a beautiful spirited person. Um, with that, um, with that, that concludes our our episode. And um, Bob, until next time. All right, take care, Mosh. Thanks take for having care. me. Bye bye. Bye bye.